From the American Foreign Policy Council in Washington, D.C., I'm Michael Sobolik, fellow in Indo-Pacific Studies, and you're listening to Great Power Podcast. It's an inside look into a world increasingly defined by great powers like the United States and China and others like Russia. It's a forum where national security experts explore how these adversaries threaten the U.S. And it's also a hub for crafting strategies to protect the American people. This is Episode 8, Russia on Ukraine's Doorstep Again. When dictators tell you who they are, it's a good practice to believe them. Take Vladimir Putin in 2005. During his annual address to the Russian nation, he revealed how he sees the world. I'm quoting him here. The demise of the Soviet Union was the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the century. And he goes on, as for the Russian people, it became a genuine tragedy. Tens of millions of our fellow citizens and countrymen found themselves beyond the fringes of Russian territory, unquote. Now, we may not share Putin's definitions of catastrophe or tragedy, but it's worth taking his words seriously. Accurately judging motivation or intent is always a tricky business in international politics and foreign policy. It's what makes threat assessment so challenging. Assessing capability is relatively easy because you're dealing with material factors that can be measured, photographed, counted, and analyzed. But with intent, you have to get into someone else's mind and see the world the way they do without projecting your own mindset onto them. Now, sometimes we do get lucky and our adversaries tell us what they're thinking. But of course, that's not enough. Because politicians talk all the time. It's what they do that reveals the weight and true meaning of their words. And in Putin's case, he wasn't bluffing. In 2014, Russia made a move for Ukraine and annexed Crimea. And now, in 2022, Putin is back. And, once again, he has his sights set on Ukraine. As of today... At the time of this recording, there are well upwards of 100,000 troops parked along Ukraine's borders, Russian troops, and U.S. officials estimate that Putin has amassed about 70% of the forces he would need to launch a full-scale invasion. So it's worth asking, how did we get here again? We saw Russia's aggression against Ukraine in 2014, but here we are. What did we miss? What did we get wrong? And perhaps most importantly, what's the path forward? To answer all these questions, I am really, really pleased to welcome Victoria Coates to the podcast. Victoria is one of the most accomplished people you will ever come across, so I do want to take just a moment to survey her experience. Victoria is a distinguished fellow in strategic studies here at AFPC. Previously, Victoria served as the Deputy National Security Advisor for the Middle East and North Africa on the National Security Council, and was also a Senior Policy Advisor at the Department of Energy. Prior to that, she was National Security Advisor to Senator Ted Cruz, 
which is where our paths first crossed in 2013. But her political career started with former Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld when she directed research for his 2011 memoir, Known and Unknown. But Victoria is also a published author in her own right and a former professor, and she holds a PhD in art history from the University of Pennsylvania. And if you stick around to the end of the podcast, I think you're going to see how all of that stuff comes full circle to our broader conversation about Russia and Ukraine. But I have one final thing to note for you guys before we jump into the conversation. You will notice very, very faint puppy sounds at the start of this uh, interview that eventually crescendo into a very loud barking dog. So please bear with us. It's, it's COVID days and we are all living real life together. I do promise you the dogs eventually stop barking. So thank you in advance for your patience. All right, Victoria, it is a pleasure to be speaking with you today. Thanks for joining the podcast. It's great to be with you, Michael, and to be colleagues again. I feel the same way. I'm excited to be working together again. I want to zoom back into time, into 2013, 2014. Our paths crossed around that time. You were national security advisor to Senator Ted Cruz. I was a scrappy intern. And at the time, we were on the brink of an incursion from Russia into Crimea with Ukraine in early 2014. Now, here we are eight years past in 2022, and the situation is similar, but in some cases, it's even worse. Why are we here again? Is this not something that we could have, should have foreseen? Is this something that was preventable? Why are we back in the situation all over again? Well, that's, that's an excellent question. And I think it's, there's a short answer and a long answer. The short, the short answer is Vladimir Putin. The long answer is that we clearly did not learn the true lesson of the end of the Cold War. And what subsequently happened in Russia, I think the assumption very much was that when the wall came down and the Soviet Union was dissolved and there were elections in Russia and Yeltsin uh, became president, that sort of progress then toward liberal democracy would happen on its own. I'm old enough to remember friends you know, going off to Moscow who were gonna make a gazillion dollars. It was gonna be the wild west of capitalism and, and everything was going to be ducky. And unfortunately, you know, for a whole host of reasons that turned out not to be the case. And, and you know, the Russian people decided that they were, ha- were going to be better off. I wouldn't necessarily say happier with a more authoritarian figure who could sort of hold things together and, and be a, a known quantity rather than the kind of chaos that uh, resulted after the Soviet Union collapsed. And, and I think we made the same assumption in Ukraine. We had the very dramatic events of 2013 and the uprising and Maidan Square and you know, the sort of freedom movement, all of which was authentic and organic. And then the elections and new president and actually Senator Cruz and I traveled there in, in May of 2014 you know, it, it was, you know, there was a remarkable sense of optimism, but at the same time, we heard from a lot of Ukrainians on that trip seven years ago that the corruption problem, the sort of Soviet structure was still very much in place and absent a very dramatic intervention by the United States and the European Union countries, 
you know, they weren't going to be able to solve it on their own. And, and to my eye, that intervention never happened. And so while we have had, you know, a series of elections in Ukraine, we definitely have a Ukraine nationalist movement. We have a desire to be democratic and secure and prosperous. The, the hard work really hasn't been done. And so, you know, if you're Putin, who felt in 2013-14 that he could right what he considered to be a historic wrong and reclaim Crimea for Russia, and you've had your eye on the eastern half of Ukraine for low these many years, you, you Putin, do not actually consider Ukraine a country. Uh, you consider it a, a series of territories, and that's why it drives the Ukrainians crazy when people refer to it as the Ukraine. It's like, no, it's not like the field or the glacier. It is a country called Ukraine. But if you're Putin, these are pieces that you could view in isolation and consume accordingly. And so, you know, there are, I think, a host of reasons he did not take dramatic action during the Trump administration. But I think particularly after the horror show in Afghanistan this summer, I think he saw an opportunity. I think it's an interesting insight into how Putin sees this particular front with Ukraine. And, and it's one that you hear a lot of people talk about, whether in Washington or honestly, uh, throughout the academy in the United States as well, which is how NATO has played out since the fall of the Soviet Union. And, and you hear this not just from academics, but increasingly from some members of Congress as well, that maybe there was something to Vladimir Putin's critique that NATO shouldn't have expanded after the Soviet Union fell. And that what Putin is doing in Ukraine now is not offensive, it's defensive because he feels encircled. And NATO was too aggressive when in the wake of the Soviet Union's demise, maybe NATO should have pulled back. This is something that, that I hear constantly. And I, I wonder if you think there's something that we're missing when people frame it in those terms. And I guess to put a finer point on it, if the West were to cede Ukraine to Vladimir Putin, would he be happy? Would he be satisfied? Would he stop there? No, no more than he was when he went into Georgia in 2008, when he again sensed weakness from the United States and went after something he thought he could take without serious repercussions. And so I would say two things. First of all, NATO is a defensive ally. NATO has never been deployed offensively against Russia or anyone else. And so I, I think that on its face, that's, that's a canard that somehow he is threatened by NATO. It's none of his business if, if sovereign independent countries wish to join NATO. He might note that it's an application process, not NATO going out and seeking you. And so this is the, the desire and impetus of the countries in question. And I think, you know, the, the, this kind of acceptance that an imperial aggressive expansionist Russia is somehow justified in Europe is, is an awfully defeatist kind, kind of position. And, you know, again, one, one should ask the people of Ukraine what, what their views are. And if they all thought this was a good idea, I think we would have seen the last seven years take take a very, very different tack. But I think you know, somehow condoning Putin's actions by blaming NATO is is, as I said, I think unbelievably self-defeating. And you know, we need to look 
at his being Putin's real discomfort with the democratic movement in Ukraine, which can almost exactly be dovetailed with the Nord Stream 2 project. And I was very struck by something Dana Perino said the other day, which she remembers being a backbencher. And again, I apologize for the dogs. Uh, We're getting everybody settled. We have a new addition. Um, This is real life. It's okay. It is. It is. It's COVID life. Uh, But Dana was saying in 2005, she was a backbencher as deputy press secretary at the White House for a George W. Bush Merkel meeting in which Bush raised Nord Stream 1 and said, is this a good idea? Why are you doing this? And, you know, Merkel had the same answer then that she had last year, which is we feel that this is a perfectly acceptable solution to Germany's energy needs and also, you know, a way of, of bringing Putin kind of into the international community. And so that's been going on for 17 years. That's not new. But he's been playing this game for 17, 17 years. A whole bunch of people woke up to the dangers of Nord Stream last year. I think you are right to bring up the angle of Nord Stream for so many reasons. But the first place my mind goes to is to a book that was published back in 2011. I think you're going to be familiar with it. it it's by Donald Rumsfeld. It's called Known and Unknown, which, which you had more than a it. hand in pulling together. <laughs> heard of it. Heard of it. Rumsfeld's commentary on Russia at the time is, is really fascinating with the benefit of hindsight. He, he says here, and I'm quoting just a small snippet. In 2001, Russia was at a crossroads. And in many ways, it remains there even a decade later at the time, 2011. Though the Russians retained the nuclear arsenal of a great power, In other respects, they were weak. They had lost much of their old empire, as we just discussed. Uh, Their gross domestic product was small, largely dependent on the extraction and sale of oil and natural gas, shrinking population, a litany of strategic issues. And yet it seems Moscow has leveraged in particular its oil and natural gas capacity to great geopolitical impact, specifically in Europe. So I, I, I do want to turn uh, to the topic of pipelines uh, and energy routes, and specifically Nord Stream 2. This pipeline has been in the news all over the place. What's the connection to Ukraine, and, and what's the strategic gambit that Putin is trying to achieve with it? Well, and I could point to the map behind your shoulder uh, to show people how this works. Uh, the, the traditional The traditional gas lines into Europe from Russia go through Ukraine, and that gives Ukraine a, a significant amount of income, and also say, you know, over, you know, whether or not the gas is going to get to its intended destination. And Nord Stream Two is an undersea Nord Stream One and Two are undersea pipelines through the Baltic, so there isn't that middleman, as it were. And the assumption is that. As Nord Stream 2 comes online, they, and, and Putin's already doing this, so it's not an if, it's not an assumption, it's fact, he will reduce probably eventually to zero the European destined gas going through the Ukrainian pipeline. So, so this, in effect, cuts Ukraine out and makes him the person with the finger on the exclusive switch of the pipeline going to Europe. So he, he, he will make the decision about how the gas gets there 
not anyone else. And he has been using this tool very, I would say, bluntly since late July when he started to reduce flows into Europe through the Ukrainian pipeline in an effort to force the Germans to do the last certification of Nord Stream 2. We've sort of skated through it. European energy prices are on the craziest of swings. It's become incredibly expensive. You have factories shutting down so that they can sell their electricity. They make more money selling their purchases of electricity than they do selling the products they're supposed to be making with said electricity. So we haven't even started to feel what those kinds of, of disruptions in supply are going to mean in an already very snarled environment. But that's that's yet 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 another problem with which we're going to have to contend. And I would say not surprising that I think Rumsfeld was a hundred percent right. I think what he could not have foreseen in 2010 would be the emergence of the United States energy dominance from about 2014-15 on and all that that entailed in terms of our having the same kinds of resources and even export potential that Russia has. Now, we've got a lot of other things as well that Russia doesn't have, but what what I find very interesting about Putin's decision making, you know, in the 2025 20 or uh, 2005-2006 timeframe is I think he took the measure of the climate movement and decided it was a paper tiger. And all those who said we were hitting peak oil right around that time frame, that's a favorite topic of another one of my former erstwhile employers, Rick Perry, is you know this whole peak oil thing was invented. It wasn't real. The climate people made it up to try to get folks to, to wean off oil, and it didn't work. And I think Putin accurately assessed that oil and gas were going to continue to be necessary well into the century, if not the next one. And I think the other person who has made this assessment is, is your friend, President Xi in China, who... Uh, I you get know, a and, friend. And, yeah. And both, both Putin and Xi will run around the world and give any speech you want about how progressive they are on climate and they care about it. And, you know, oh, the United States is the dirty polluter and so on and so forth. They haven't done a darn thing. I mean, you could say quite the opposite. And meanwhile, we have started to restrict our production, our exploration, uh, our support for overseas projects. It, we're, we're voluntarily abdicating this. And you know, I think that it was the assumption he made. It was reversed during the Trump administration, obviously. And I would, would add that, that we did that without in any way negatively impacting climate. As a matter of fact, I believe our emissions reductions are the greatest in history of any administration in history. So these two things are not mutually exclusive in any way, but you know, to continue to have the enormous strategic leverage that energy dominance gives us, we, we have to continue with exploration and production. And, and the minute we give that up, you're playing right into Putin's hand. So two follow-up questions. One, sure. The other is a, a little, little media here. Uh, the first one, uh, is the United States in a competitive position to offset Russia's energy dominance in Europe? Is it just as easy as increasing our exports if, if we're able to, in a crisis scenario, to relieve pressure from European partners and allies if Putin plays energy politics? 
The short answer is no. We can surge exports that could go various places that we're already major suppliers to. Japan, for example, which would free up other gas. It will take time. And a lot of that would have to be done by, by barge rather than by pipeline, which is also harder and more expensive. You know, and it's why you know, the State Department coming out last week and announcing we no longer support the Eastern Mediterranean pipeline is so very disappointing because it's not a viable project yet, but it's the sort of thing you want to start working on now so that you have that capacity going forward. And you know, obviously we have friends like the Qataris who can increase their exports, but it's not going to be enough to solve the problem. So a, a meteor question that is in the headlines, but I think takes a little bit of, of wading through complexity to get to the heart of Nord Stream 2 again, uh, the debate on when to sanction this pipeline. This has been reflected in a lot of debates, particularly in the Senate right now, where you have our old boss, among others, Senator Cruz, uh, making the argument that the single best thing we could do for Ukraine is to target this Nord Stream 2 pipeline now and not defer the threat of sanctions to after Putin invading. Uh, you see a consensus position, not just from congressional Democrats, but also from the Biden administration saying, no, we need to hang the threat of sanctioning Nord Stream 2 over Putin's head as a deterrent so he won't invade in the first place. Unpack that dynamic, because people throw around the word deterrence a lot at the 30,000 foot level, but it can get complicated when you actually get into a real life situation. Now, I, I not surprisingly, I would agree with Senator Cruz, and I would actually go back to the, the list of, of miseries from Rumsfeld that, that Russia needs to deal with. And also very important when dealing with the Russians to remember they're not 100 feet high. And Putin is not inevitable, and he is not universally beloved the way he might like to think that he is. So you know the the problem the Russians have, they, you know, there's there's a lot of literature on this that I think gets neglected, is the their reliance on fossil fuels will eventually run out, not perhaps as soon as as the peak oil folks thought, but they have had a bad problem diversifying. And it's why so many activities in the Gulf right now are so interesting. You know, a lot of our allies there are looking and very aggressively at ways to diversify their, their economies. Mohammed bin Zayed of the United Arab Emirates, for example, has said that when the last barrel of oil is shipped from Fujairah, he wants it to be a parade. He wants everyone to be so excited that they have successfully exploited, obviously, their fossil fuels resources, but been able to, at the same time, create a new economy for their people. And, you know, there's obviously some rhetoric there, but it, it shows you where, where their heads are. The Russians have not succeeded in doing that. They don't have the technological base. They say they do, but they don't. And they know we know this. And, you know, our research and development budget in new technologies, everything from AI to cyber, dwarfs theirs. So I think doubling down on that advantage and 
continuing to pressure them economically in ways big and small is how you modify behavior because Putin knows one thing, it's the mood of the Russian people. And he knows at some point, you know, they're perfectly capable of uprising. And, you know, if, if he is unable to, to sustain the economy in an acceptable way, that's probably his greatest weakness. So I would say sanction Nord Stream now. I would I mean, obviously, I would have done it before. I mean, we did. Uh, keep those sanctions on, you know, make sure everybody who so much as, as gives the pipeline a sandwich knows they're going to be pursued by the United States. And, you know, who do you want to do business with? And that becomes a pretty stark choice, even for the Germans. So I think saying that we're going to have this leverage at some point in the future, do we say that as Putin is marching through Kiev? Are we likely to do it if Putin's marching through Kiev? You know, it seems to me to have done it, you know, when Senator Cruz had his vote last month would have been the optimal moment. You know, you had, you could have, I mean, you did have bipartisan support. You could have had more. And, you know, and the administration could be go, ah, it's the crazies on the Hill. You know, we can't do anything about it. You know, then it's done. So I, I think, I think they, rather than retaining deterrence, I think they, they missed a major opportunity. You mentioned Germany, which is a subject I want to get into here with you, NATO cohesion, or perhaps lack thereof in some cases. When the administration was pushing back against the effort to sanction the Nord Stream 2 pipeline now, the biggest argument they put forward was that sanctioning Nord Stream 2 before a Russian invasion would harm NATO cohesion. And even more than that, that the effort was designed to drive a wedge between the United States and European allies. And the country that they were referring to, but was unspoken, was Germany. It's interesting looking back to the Trump administration and how the former president made contributions to NATO a big deal with how he approached the alliance. And at the top of that list was Germany. Now, you see the Biden administration taking a very different approach, which is taking the foot off the gas of NATO defense contributions, but also beyond that, not being willing to take steps that would upset Berlin in this case. I'm curious to get your thoughts on the state of NATO, not in an existential way, uh, but in this particular instance, how unified is the alliance on this question of Vladimir Putin's ambitions in Eastern Europe? Where is Germany in all of this? Well, I think, you know, it's it's an interesting issue. As you said, President Trump did prioritize getting NATO contributions up. And to go back to Secretary Rumsfeld, when he was ambassador to NATO in 1974, I've read all of his papers, and he was complaining voraciously in 1974 about the feckless Europeans who were failing to invest in their own defense. So th- that was not at all new with President Trump. What, what President Trump brought, which no previous president had, was everybody thought he was perfectly capable of withdrawing from NATO. 
as he withdrew from Paris and he withdrew from the nuclear deal. And they knew the sort of diplomatic niceties that might have tied presidential hands in the past were not going to help them in this case. And we saw a dramatic rise in contributions to NATO. And what was fascinating to me is one of the last NATO summits I was privy to at the end, Secretary General Soltenberg came out and said, we actually got business done at this meeting. NATO is back. And I mean, Soltenberg and Trump were not friends <laughs> by no, any stretch of the imagination. But he, the Secretary General, recognized that what President Trump had done with had not ruined NATO, but it had focused everybody on the fact that they needed NATO. And if they wanted to keep NATO, they were going to need to make these contributions because the Americans weren't going to be their ATM in perpetuity. So there was great value in that. And there was unity of purpose in, in NATO at that time. And I don't want to harp on Afghanistan, but I think, again, why you're seeing Putin start to move with impunity is he knows the damage that was done to NATO because of the way the withdrawal from Afghanistan was managed. And the fact that we did not consult with our allies who had been with us, you know, for 20 years, who had, I mean, Article 5 of the NATO Charter was invoked the first and only time after 9-11 and supported the NATO mission in Afghanistan. So for us to be so utterly disrespectful and, I mean, just ignore our allies as the surrender was, was unfolding and leave them, you know, in what they considered to be an untenable position, you know, material damage was done to the alliance at that point. And I don't think we've assessed fully what it is. But again, I think Putin saw that, you know, I think he saw the, I mean, even something they do that I think is, is good, like the Australia-British-US alliance is handled in such a way that it completely alienates the French. And, you know, so again, a good thing was done in a way that strikes at the heart of NATO, you know, and, and, and Germany is you know, is obviously an issue. And to have a reunified Germany in NATO, including East Germany, which of course Putin thinks of as part of the Soviet Union, they have a, a different relationship with Russia. And I think that is always going to be a challenge. I think the best way to handle it, not surprisingly, is, is with a lot of tough love. Uh, obviously we have, you know, Germany's an enormous economy. We have very strong ties, but at the same time, you know, our interests are not always perfectly aligned. And so that takes, that takes hard work, but I've never seen Berlin respond with the desired change of behavior when you're basically handing them everything they want. You know, the only time they're going to actually change and maybe partner with the United States on something that's a U.S. initiative is if they feel there are going to be real ramifications and penalties if they don't do it. And they don't feel that way right now. So, you know, they can have their cake and eat it too. I asked you a few minutes ago about this line of thinking that for one reason or another casts NATO as the villain here instead of Vladimir Putin and Russia. There is another strand of thought that I'm hearing more often uh, on both extremes of the partisan spectrum, which is maybe we don't have the capacity we used to have right in the wake of the Soviet Union's collapse 
in the 90s. Maybe the United States doesn't have the wherewithal to be a global power with global interests anymore. And it might be time to start triaging our interests. And the, the, the line of thinking that that is more often than not taken to is the theater that matters the most is the Indo-Pacific. And maybe in, uh, in the interest of pivoting, to use a, a word with some baggage, to pivot towards the Indo-Pacific, we need to make sacrifices. And, and this is the argument that President Biden made days after the calamity of the pullout from Afghanistan. Uh, he said, I think it was the first justification in his speech in the East Room of the White House that we need to position ourselves for competition with China. I'm hearing leading conservative politicians saying the same thing as well. Is it possible with the power and the resources that the United States has to stand up simultaneously to multiple threats from multiple dictatorships today? Are we able to really stand with Ukraine and also, to pick another example, stand with Taiwan? Well, my, my answer, not surprisingly, would be hell yes. You know, if you look at where we were in 1942, we were in a considerably weaker position, both in terms of our international standing and the size of our economy. And we were able to stand up to and defeat both Imperial Japan and Nazi Germany. So if we have to, of course we can. Now, do we want to? Absolutely not. That was not a pleasant experience and nobody wants to go through it again. And so the use of our power, which has been remarkable over the last 75 years, has really been to prevent that kind of thing from happening again. And we remain the world's largest economy. We have the largest military that has ever existed in the history of the planet. And to my mind, the way we continue to exert influence in the 21st century, which will obviously be different than it was in the 20th, is to make sure that economy continues to hum along, which is in many ways, you know, why I think these administration's policies are so disastrous because they are voluntarily restricting our economic growth in the name of climate and in the way they want to manage COVID and the way they want to approach social spending. It is more important to them that they use all of government resources in ways that, in my mind, really do undermine the economy, uh, both through debt and through policy that that's more important to them than the kind of power a unleashed robust US economy would represent. And at the same time, our military, you know, a lot of our colleagues at, at AFPC have done yeoman's work on military rebuild and what we should be doing. You know, it's, it's a huge task. You know, it comes along about once every 20 years, you've got to figure out, you know, what your strategic plan is gonna be, where you're gonna commit those resources, you know, we have these extraordinary advances, things like the Ford, the F-35, the, the aircraft carrier, the Ford, the first of its, its nuclear class, all of which have had just endless technological glitches. That was inevitable, but we need to figure out how we resolve those once and for all and deploy those assets and then look at what the next generation is going to be so that we continue to be the purveyor of choice that everybody wants to partner with us. And then we also have to look at how we deploy these capabilities. One of the things I mentioned was the Eastern Mediterranean pipeline to get 
gas up to up to Europe from our eastern Mediterranean allies from Egypt and Cyprus and, and Israel and Greece. This is a place where our private sector could be, if properly supported and incentivized, a kind of a third arm of United States national security. And in a way, for for the China, what they refer to themselves as the China hawks, I consider myself a China hawk as well. But if you want to be hawkish on China, what you have to offer is an alternative. And the sort of amazing thing about this moment and whether you know the administration can pivot to grasp it or if it's going to fall to the next president, but to to paint this as a stark choice for the international community. And in the wake of COVID, you know, this notion that China's a hundred feet high and you know, every we have to put every nickel into the China basket is is ridiculous. They just devastated the planet and <laughs> killed a million people. And and you know, apparently that's not even bad manners. And we're all still going to go to the Olympics and invite Xi Nanga and all these things. But look, I mean, you, who do you want to be friends with? Do you want to be friends with the people who unleashed the virus, or do you want to be friends with the United States, which helped cure it? And then, you know, and then gave this largesse to the world. And so, you know, I think if we really want to counter China, the way you do it is you do harness these enormous advantages that we have. You can ask any developing nation, do you want a Chinese state-owned entity to come in and develop your railroad or airport? Or do you want, you know, Bechtel or one of the big U.S. industrial giants to come in? And the answer is always, please, let's have Bechtel. That is a massive advantage for us. And we have never approached it deliberately or strategically, but I think that that is the tool, you know, which is is what we still have in the box that we can deploy. And so figuring out how to do that. Sadly, Michael, I know you're gonna be shocked to learn with this. It is not the competes act that just was produced in the House of Representatives, although God bless them, their, their hearts are, I will say in this, on this particular issue in the right place, but as the Wall Street Journal pointed out today, this is basically a socialist approach to solving China, which is not gonna work. But there is actually, all joking aside, bipartisan support for getting, getting after this problem. And I would hope enough members of Congress have industries in their districts that would make a lot of money off of this that it could really get a lot of of support. And I think the American people who feel very cheated by China and very wounded by the virus would would be supportive of it as well. So I think to get back to your question, we certainly don't want to have to deal with Ukraine and, and Taiwan simultaneously, but we've done it before. If we must, we can do it again. But we're going to have to be smart and strategic about it. But the good news is that that we have the capabilities. Returning to Rumsfeld one more time, the title of the book, Known and Unknown, he he used this as a reference point to talk about what it is that leaders are aware of as a blind spot of knowledge, and then the blind spots that we're not even aware of, the unknown unknowns, uh, as he put it. As you look at what's playing out with Ukraine and Russia today, and even at this broader geopolitical level of how the United States engages as a great power, or in some cases cripples itself as a great power, as you've laid out some cases for how we do that, what are 
the blind spots strategically that concern you the most as you look ahead, say, in the next three or five years? Well, I mean, when, one of the reasons that DR was, was so fascinated by the knowns and unknowns, what, what the example he would go back to is, is no one asked him about Afghanistan in his confirmation hearing to be Secretary of Defense. Why would they have? And when they, you know, after 9-11 and it was clear Afghanistan was a problem, they went and looked for the plan of what, what, how do you invade Afghanistan? And it was decades old and not of any use. So they needed a new plan. So being prepared for that kind of shock is what one has to anticipate. And what concerns me most, this might seem like a cop-out, but I don't think it is, is a change in decision-making after this first year of, of the Biden administration, that things I was pretty confident would not happen under President Trump. You know, one of the great strategic tools he retained was unpredictability. Nobody knew what he was going to do. Heck, his own staff didn't know what he was going to do half the time. You know, and it, that, that's fine. Nobody voted for me. So we got a lot done under those, under those circumstances. And it really did shape global decision making. Now, you know, over particularly the, the next year, I think there is concern on the part of America's enemies that do not want America to have a robust global posture, that there's going to be a significant change in the Congress. So this time next year, all sorts of interesting things can be imagined and cooked up and, and legislated. As we both know, that's, that's a pretty blunt tool for national security. It could slow some things down. But ultimately, the prospect of a change in 24 is what, what's going to perhaps accelerate some very negative developments. And I would see those as the emergence of significant Chinese spheres of influence in places we're not watching closely. I would see that as the expansion of you know, any number of our enemies, but, you know, we can't forget about our Iranian friends, you know, the North Koreans. There's a temptation to see them just in their own borders, and obviously they're not, and they're active throughout. Is it a nuclear proliferation that we haven't thought of? What if Venezuela tests a bomb? What does that mean for the Western Hemisphere for, you know, it, it, you know that that's the sort of thing that, you know, one one worries is going to suddenly literally pop out and we're just woefully unprepared. So it, it won't be that one because I thought of it, but it will be another. And the question is, will the decision makers at that point have the intellectual elasticity that I would argue Rumsfeld did in the days after 9-11 to plan a historic intervention in Afghanistan that was, you know, the, the, the shame of this year, notwithstanding, was one of the great triumphs of creative modern military thinking combined with some good old-fashioned horseback riding and some other interesting things that it, our listeners can read about in Known and Unknown. But that's the key, is to have people in place who can shake themselves out of what they were planning on and plan for what the reality that they're given. So, you know, my, my hopes and prayers is, are that when, when the shock comes, we're prepared. If you can indulge me one final question. This one is a little more of a personal note. 
you helped Donald Rumsfeld in writing his memoirs. I want to talk about a book that you wrote for yourself called David Sling. And I think this is something that is really interesting about you, Victoria, because your entree into politics was working with a former secretary of defense. You had a entire life before this as an art historian mm-hmm. uh, and a professor, and, and you got your PhD in this subject. And I, I was rereading a little bit of your book, David Sling, in advance of our conversation. And it struck me how you characterized the David of Michelangelo and the sling that David's holding. And, and I should say for the listeners who have not read Victoria's book yet, the premise of her book is taking 10 pieces of art and architecture through Western civilization and showing through uh, this tapestry over time, how democracy in one way or another has been this constant thread represented through uh, the arts that has been an advantage, a strategic advantage, maybe an asymmetric advantage to the West. And the uh, David Sling, his asymmetric advantage against the giant Goliath, I think is a powerful metaphor. And I want to ask you, as someone who has worked at the highest levels in national security and foreign policy, with the background you have, how has your experience uh, in the arts provided you perhaps an asymmetric advantage in giving you a vantage point to see these things at a global scale that maybe most other people in this field miss, that they don't see? Well, I think, I, I don't know that art history per se is that much of an advantage, but history for sure is. And, you know, the argument I would make about art history is that, you know, the, the physical records of these cultures that we study in the past and, and David Sling, I'm very kind of you to mention it. It goes from the Parthenon to Picasso's Guernica. You know, each one of the 10 works in the book was deliberately produced to commemorate a free system. And God bless them. They wrote it down. Thucydides wrote down Pericles' funeral oration, which he apparently gave in front of the Parthenon, pointed to it and said, there, that is it. This was created by Athenian democracy. And God bless them for doing it. But it, you know, those two things taken in conjunction, if you have both Parthenon and Thucydides, you know, you can get a pretty clear picture of how these people wanted to be remembered and what was important to them. And, you know, what was very moving and humbling to me in writing the book was, you know, trying to get into the heads of the individuals who were making these enormous decisions under terrible circumstances with very little information and, you know, the, the successes that they had. And then also both the durability of concept of democracy as originating in ancient Athens, but then also its frailty. And certainly, you know, in the last year or so with all of the squawkings and howlings about the attacks on democracy and, you know, oh, we're so frail and, oh, we're going to fall apart. You know, I, I got very aggressively questioned about that in, during a panel in November, right after the Virginia election and, you know, how I could possibly refer to the United States as still being a democracy. I was like, well, because we just did it yesterday. 
you know, and here's the answer is, you know, am I happy about everything that's gone down? I am not. But at the same time, all you can do is go out and have a select, you know, a successful exercise of, of democracy. And we can continue to do that. And it's going to take work. And certainly the book teaches us that, you know, we've had, we've had our share of failures, you know, Athens, Rome, Venice, Florence, the list goes on. But at the same time, you know, they, it, it keeps coming back. So I would say historical perspective and, and not, you know, and, and having been, for that reason, a very healthy appreciation, love and respect for the United States, but also, you know, an understanding of, of what came before in a way has both served to elevate us in my mind and, and have be take us with a little bit of a grain of salt. So I think I think having that and having an intellectual refuge is extremely important to again remind you that whatever is on the front page of the Washington Post today, as distressing and disturbing as it may be, as even incorrect as it may be, it's going to pass. That is both a comfort and I think can lead to some some broader thinking and some unusual solutions. And you can make connections between things. So in, in a way, it is an advantage. I'm really glad we're ending on this note. And, and I, I hope people who are listening see this not as this addendum attached onto this larger conversation about Russia and foreign policy. I, I do think there's a valuable connection to be made here. The thought that popped into my head listening to you, it, it takes a great deal of effort to enter the historical record to people who you can't sit across the table from and have a conversation with and try to, as you say, get into their head and to take the totality to the degree that we can of where they were in their point of time, the decisions they made, why they made it. And I'll, I'll tell you that the phrase that popped in my head when you were saying that was mirror imaging, which is so easy mm-hmm. for those of us in foreign policy to do which is to assume that the other person on the other side of the table thinks the same way that I do. And I really appreciate working with you in the Senate and now getting the chance to work with you now, because I've seen countless times how you have not just the capacity, but you see the value in really truly putting yourself in the position of another person and understanding the strategic rationale not for the purpose of agreeing with them necessarily, but for the purpose of understanding and for the purpose of defending something that's valuable to us as Americans. So I think this is a a really good note to end on. And I'm also just grateful to have the conversation with you. So again, Victoria, thanks so much for joining the, the show today. Always a pleasure, Michael. I look forward to doing it again. Thanks for listening. Please be sure to subscribe and leave a rating or review. To learn more about AFPC's research, visit us online at afpc.org. For questions or comments, you can reach me at greatpowerpod at afpc.org. I'm Michael Sobolik, and you've been listening to Great Power Podcast. We hope you'll join us again next time.